Welcome to Indie Matters, a show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. We're off this week reporting on some fantastic news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from the past year in this Rewind episode. The first will be a story on state symbols, one of my favorite topics. Then I chat with some scientists about caves in rural Nevada, and we wrap up this episode with a few monster stories from Nevada's past that were featured in our Halloween episode. Let's get into it. Okay, well, I am here with Sherry Hayes Zorn with the Nevada Historical Society. Thanks for joining me. You're so welcome. It's nice to be here today. Yeah, and so honestly, this is also an exciting podcast because um, you're one of the first in-person interviews I've done since 2019. <laughs> so it's nice to get out of the house again. So we're talking about something really fun today. Um, we're talking about state symbols. This is a, a personal fascination of mine since the third grade. I don't know why, but they've always stayed in my head. I know we have a lot of them. I think we have 26. And I did a video, I guess in the 2019 legislative session, where they passed neon as the state element, which I believe is the most recent state symbol to be added. Am I correct? Yeah, it is. That is the latest one. I mean, to start off, what is a state symbol? Why do we have them? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Well, state symbols represent what you consider unique and something that is of pride for your state that makes people want to learn more about your state or, or come and find these fascinating topics or little tidbits that another state may not have. So mm-hmm. that's what I find fun about the symbols. And actually, children are the ones that have been over the last several years and several decades have been promoting state symbols and adding to the number. So why do we have them? Like you said, it, part of it is like it represents the state, drives people to the state. What makes them important? Well, I would say the symbols try to capture the character and show what makes Nevada unique and different. Like you said, neon. That's unique. That's Nevada. When you think of neon, it's sexy. And so that's a draw for people. And they think, oh, Vegas. So that's definitely something that not every place has. So actually in 1893 is when they had the Chicago Fair. They were doing a selection of state flowers and the idea of wanting to know what were the flowers of each state. And that was how state symbols and emblems first started. And then in the 20s, the Federation of Women's Clubs throughout the country were trying to select state birds. And so then that became a thing, and Nevada didn't select our bird until 1967. But, I mean, we we had chose our seal, we chose the flag and the model, of course, early on in 1866, but it's, I think... People take pride in these things, and they want to know more about their state and keep adding to it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The state bird is the mountain blue jay. Am I right? Yes, it is. Yeah, I still got it. (laughs) Good job. Good job. And and the first state symbols that are added when a state becomes a state, I'm assuming, are its flag. You know, probably its motto, its seal. Are there any others that kind of are like every state has this? I'm assuming like state bird and flower are also. Those are pretty the pretty standard ones. You got your flower, your animal, maybe your fossil. How are they chosen? Who chooses these state symbols? Well, groups 
and individuals might push them forward, but ultimately it's our state assembly and legislature that will actually submit them as bills that get um, put forward to the governor and then they get approved and they become part of our Nevada revised statutes under miscellaneous state symbols. Mm goes through the legislative process like any other law in the state. My understanding is it's not supposed to be political. It is supposed to just represent the state and everyone is supposed to come around and it's supposed to be a good thing, a happy thing. But what's the best of our state and what what we can take pride in to promote our state? Do you have a favorite state symbol? I love the ichthyosaurus. I think that's my favorite. And just the fact it's so unique and it's at the Berlin Ichthyosaurus State Park. The official name is Lizard of the Shoshone Mountains. That's just a whole, it's a magical name if you think about it. And and there are 53 or 54 intact skeleton remains, fossils that were discovered there when they started doing digging in the 50s. But what I think is neat about it is that no one even noticed it initially because it was mining. And then it became this great treasure trove and the state acknowledged it and then it became a state. So it's it's a really cool piece and they're, and they're quite large. Mm-hmm. I also think the ichthyosaur is really cool. But I have also been fascinated by the fact that we have two state trees. We couldn't just pick one, apparently. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about why we have two state trees and what they are? Absolutely. So what we've got are two, and it's over different decades that we've got the, the, with the tree, we have the single leaf pinyon pine. So that was designated as a state tree back in 1953. And then we have the bristlecone pine, which was designated in 89. And so what's unique is that the single leaf is the only known pinyon pine that is in the United States. So that makes it a very unique tree. But then also the bristlecone is being the oldest living organism dealing with a tree in the world. I mean, the average here is 4,000 years old. So, I mean, just imagine all the history it's it's witnessed over its time. And, and so there are states that have more than one, maybe dealing with trees or flowers that they feel are really significant and of importance. And because the bristlecone and the, and the pinyon pine are very unique, I, I can see why they added a second one to showcase the uniqueness of these trees. Mm-hmm. I was thinking when I saw that, I was like, oh, we're just trying to add more state symbols. And then I saw that Texas had like 50 state symbols. And I'm like, of course, Texas has that many. And California has like 40 something. (laughs) So we're not even close to them. But I do think that like some of the state symbols seem really unique. I find also really fascinating is the state tartan. Explain to me what a tartan is. Absolutely. So the tartan actually was designated as our state tartan or or plaid Mm -hmm. back in 2001. And we were at that point the 14th state to adopt a plaid. Really? I didn't realize there was that many. I I was surprised too when I was looking at this. But I mean, we do have an amazing amount of Scottish American heritage. And Mm. I think back when Bob Miller was governor, he recognized the first Tartan Day. And so April 6th every year is National Tartan Day. 
And so I thought, oh, this is wonderful, perfect timing. <laughs> then it became a law in 2001 by Governor Gwynn, recognized it, and every year nationally everybody recognizes plaids. Well, what's interesting about plaids is that they actually have to be created, they have to be unique in their design and their pattern. So they have a unique Nevada plaid. Yes, and it represents the state as a whole. Each of the colors represent different parts of our state's heritage. So red is for the Virgin Valley Black Fire Opal and the Red Rock Desert. Yellow is supposed to be for the sagebrush or state flower. Uh, white is for the formations of the snow on the, the mountains of the Sierras. We have the blue, of course, represents the water and also our mountain bluebird. And we have uh, silver and blue within it represents the state's colors. And my understanding is that there's intersections, eight threads, I guess, and eight threads represents, if you add that up, represents 64, meaning that the state was created back in 1864. Mm. So it's, it's a lot of symbolism in it. And I, I know they put a lot of effort into coming up with what it means and how it represents the state. It's very unique. One other state symbol that I also love is we have a state locomotive, uh, which I have actually seen. It's an Ely, correct? Yes, it is. It's engine number 40, and it's a beautiful piece. It's associated with the Nevada Northern Railway and the East Ely Depot and Museum. And it's it's actually was built in 1906, but it was with the railroad that was in Ely from 1910 until they closed in 1941. It was used just to um, haul passengers. It really has never been altered. What's our most unique state symbol that you think? Well, say we've talked about the tartan. We've talked about the locomotive, the bird. Something that's unique is our gems. Is you're dealing with the or your precious and semi-precious gems. <laughs> and I find that very funny too. We have to have a precious and a semi-precious. We can't have just one. <laughs> well, and then truly, the, I guess the distinction is if it's something that's a little bit rare mm-hmm. and has more value versus other is is somewhat the distinction, or if it's something hard to find. Mm-hmm. So, like the the precious gem is the black opal or the Virgin Valley black opal. And then turquoise is our semi-precious. But turquoise can be very fragile because it's very thin veins. Mm. And then you actually, when you harvest it and then you cut it to cabochons, it can break easily. And But they're, they're amazing pieces. And turquoise can truly be found across all of Nevada and, and actually has the history of the most mines active, defunct of any of the Western states, which is an interesting little fact Mm. associated with turquoise. But turquoise has always been used in ceremonies as Mm. religious items that have definitely meanings. And of course, with the Native American jewelry of the 20s and 30s. Well, and I, I realized we didn't mention silver. We are the silver state. Correct me if I'm wrong, the state medal. 
It is. It is a state <laughs> medal. And so actually it was designated the state medal in 1977, but there actually was a dispute whether or not maybe it should be copper because of the copper mines, Ely. But the fact it represents the long history of the state and with the discovery of silver. So silver won out in the end. All right. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, thanks for talking about all these fun state symbols. It's one of my favorite topics. Well, uh, thank you for asking. I, I think it's a fun topic. And, and I think kids and adults find it fun to learn more about our state's history. Southeast of Ely, on a highway dubbed the loneliest road in America, lies Great Basin National Park. You can see the mountains as you approach, but today we're going to be talking about what's under those mountains, caves. Lehman Caves is located in Great Basin, and this year the park is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the caves. I got the chance to tour them earlier this summer, and my tour guide Kelsey Jackson explained to me what makes the caves so special. Just note you'll hear some other people in the background who are also going through the caves while Kelsey was showing me around. So this cave, it's not the biggest by any means. It's only about a little bit over two miles if you put all the rooms and passages next to each other. So it's, it's the longest cave in Nevada, but it's not the longest cave in the world. But this cave is really special because we have so many formations that are so close to you. You can walk right up to them and really see them and connect with the formations. Some of those formations include stalactites, those are the ones that hang from the ceiling, and stalagmites, which are the ones that come up from the floor. There are also really unique formations like cave bacon and cave turnips, which, you guessed it, look like bacon and turnips growing on the cave ceiling and walls. The cave also has a really unique formation called cave shields, which look like giant parachutes ribbed with rocks, where it's wide at the top and tapers towards the bottom. Here's cave researcher Gretchen Baker on those. Lehman Caves itself has over 500 cave shields, which is uh, one of the highest numbers in the world. So that makes it really interesting. And there are some cave shields in some of the other caves, but not necessarily all of them. So we're trying to understand why do some caves have them and some caves don't. And so that makes it really special and don't understand why it's only found there. We had people come in and count the cave shields that we have here in this cave. We have the most cave shields out of any cave in the entire world. We have 504, so this is kind of a, a research hotspot. And speaking of research, there's actually a ton of caves in Nevada. And recently, Gretchen got to assemble what she's calling the Dream Team to research and map these caves in eastern Nevada. Great Basin National Park and the Ely District of the U.S. Forest Service are collaborating on a Protecting Wild Caves in White Pine County project. And White Pine County is where most of the caves in the state of Nevada are. We just have lots of mountain ranges with lots of limestone and dolomite, which are the two rocks that the caves are found in most often. And we know a fair bit about some of the caves, but there are a lot of questions we have. So in order to help answer those questions, a project proposal was submitted to the Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act program, and it got accepted and funded. We have an archaeologist, paleontologist, geologist, and a couple biologists on this team. And they are going out to these different caves and investigating them. So writing down and taking photographs of everything they find. We're also doing some videos and some cave mapping to help 
make sure that we document these caves as best we can and find out which caves might need additional research and which caves might be good to be open for the public so they can experience what a wild cave can be like. So, you know, I wanted to know what it's like inside of these caves and what researchers are finding. So here's what Gretchen had to say, but just a warning, if you have arachnophobia, beware. We're learning about some of the spiders in some of the caves that have really long webs that look like they might pass down from generation to generation. And we're not sure if these spiders are only found in caves, if they are, they're only in one mountain range. We haven't found them in other mountain ranges. So maybe they have been isolated for so long in those caves that they've become their own species. So we're going to be consulting with experts on that and perhaps doing some molecular work to find out if we have some new species to science in these cave spiders. The cave can support life that is so unique because the environment is so much more specific than what we find above ground, which leads to life that has much more interesting living conditions. We have one cave that has really high carbon dioxide levels seasonally, and there's been a study in a cave in Australia where they found that caves there that have, have high CO2 have more cave biodiversity than others. So apparently those cave invertebrates have really adapted to this what toxic environment for us humans, but they're, they're good with it. And so that might be where we're able to find something that's pretty extreme. So Lehman Caves specifically actually has some pretty unique critters. Here's Kelsey again. We also have like small organisms that are only found here within Great Basin National Park. They're not found anywhere else. We have pseudoscorpions, a Great Basin cave pseudoscorpions, which are my personal favorite. They're the top predator of the cave. They're feared by many and about the size of your pinky nail. <laughs> yeah. We have millipedes, springtails. We also have bats, of course, that, that hang out over by the natural entrance. They'll fly in sleep during the day and then go out and eat all the bugs that annoy us at night, which is wonderful. So yeah, we also want to protect the cave so people can come see it, but also for, for our organisms as well oh, wow. to be able to thrive down here. But you know, it's not just an exploration of the living critters. Nevada's caves harbor the remains of some ancient creatures as well, which can teach us about the land many, many generations before it became the state we know today. The caves preserve bones really well because it maintains a pretty regular temperature and humidity in there. And they found things like ancient tiny knee-high pronghorns and giant cave bears and pterosaurs or pterodactyls as they're also known, which are giant flying reptiles with wingspans of 16 feet or more. The subterranean places where things are preserved for so long lets us get a glimpse back in time of how things used to be and how they may have formed and some of these caves are really old, millions of years old. And so thinking about, whoa, yeah, what was going on here millions of years ago is a pretty cool thought. Okay, so all of the critters in research are really cool and can tell us a lot, but what about caves themselves? What's going on with the actual rocks and minerals that are found in these holes in the desert? Caves in themselves are kind of like treasure troves. We have lots of cool different sciences kind of meeting here in this area. Um, we have ecology, we've got geology, hydrology, all sorts of things are happening here in this cave. And for us to be able to learn more about ourselves in the future, I think we need to keep these places safe. The geology, we're getting a better understanding that 
a lot of the caves started from warm acidic water that came up from below. The whole region has been overlooked as far as cave science. And so we have some really top people as part of the stream team looking at it. And so, you know, that warm acidic water may help inform some of the origin of some of these geological features and of some other related things that are really big in our state, like mining. We're trying to puzzle out, like, where did this warm acidic water come from? There had to have been some big warm event. And so one of the hypotheses is it's when the the Carlin trend formed and the gold was being pushed up near Elko. And so if we can connect to that, then that tells us a much wider area of what was going on at that time. So are these caves in danger of going away? How are they being affected by the ever-changing climate? Because believe it or not, most caves are actually growing, but that may be being threatened. Caves specifically are really good mirrors for what it's like outside. So we're in a really bad drought here in this region. If that water is not coming into the cave, it's not depositing the minerals that the cave needs to grow. So everything just kind of halts and it's very, very dry. There hasn't been much research yet about the effects of condensation corrosion on the the formations themselves. So that carbon dioxide eating away at the formations naturally, maybe the rate at which that happens might start to surpass the rate at which water can actually deposit those minerals. It's very, very important that we make sure water is coming into the cave so that people can see how cool this is in the future. When we walk around on Earth, we often don't think about what we're walking on or what's under our feet. And when we look, can go down underground, whether it's into the soil or into a cavity like a cave, we are able to find out so much more. And caves are, I call them treasure tropes because they may not have Spanish gold in them, (laughs) but they do have a lot of preserved things because they generally are hard to get into, so not too many people have gone into them, and so they're rather undisturbed. There's not big rain events generally in them, and so they stay fairly static, and so you can have records that go back tens of thousands of years. And so you learn that bristlecone pines used to grow a lot lower on the mountain, but nowadays you don't see them there. And so that tells you that the climate was a lot different at that period. And if we didn't have places like caves, that evidence would have been washed away in flash floods or blown away in high winds. This piece was written, reported, and edited by myself, Joey Lovato, with additional reporting help from Daniel Rothberg and additional editing help from Jackie Valley. We're going to talk about literal monsters. <laughs> or, or cryptids and, uh, you know, sightings of monsters here in Nevada. And, and to define cryptids for those who are unaware, Wikipedia describes it as a creature that may or may not exist. <laughs> and we want to make this clear up front, just to avoid any sort of War of the Worlds situation here, that none of these are based in any story of fact or science, but are purely first-hand accounts published in the early 1900s the most reputable time period of human history. We thought for (laughs) Halloween, it would be fun. So I'm sure if you live in northern Nevada, you've probably heard of Tahoe Nessie or Tessie, and we're not going to be covering her. (laughs) Uh, That's because she's gotten enough attention. I wanted to dig a little deeper and find some more obscure cryptids. The first story read is Space Clams. This is from an article published in 1956 in the publication Flying Flying Saucers, the magazine of Space space conquest. Conquest. 
And while this was published in 1956, the actual sighting, if it's to be believed, happened in 1925, which would make it one of the first UFO sightings in the U.S. So to read the transcript of the piece published in Flying Saucers in 1956 is our own Jacob Solis. This is Space Clams. I must write to tell you of what happened to me in 1925, which, I think, solves most of these UFO reports. I've never told this to anyone, but can get a signed affidavit if needed. Four of us were flying old Jennies, Ox-5 motors, over the Nevada desert. One plane was a two-seater, the one I was in. We landed on Flat Mesa near Battle Mountain, Nevada. The mesa is about 5,000 square feet, and the walls are too steep to climb, unless a lot of work is done. We wanted to see what was on top of this flat place. We landed at 1 p.m. While walking about the top of this place, we noticed something coming in for a landing. It was about eight feet across and was round and flat like a saucer. The undersides were a reddish color. It skidded to a stop about 30 feet away. Now, this next you won't believe, and I don't care, but it's the truth. We walked up to the thing, and it was some animal like we've never saw before. It was hurt, and as it breathed, the top would rise and fall, making a half-foot hole all around it like a clam opening and closing. Quite a hunk had been chewed out of one side of this rim, and a sort of metal-looking froth issued. When it saw us, it breathed frantically and rose up only a few inches, only to fall back to earth again. It was moist and glistened on the top side. We could see no eyes or legs. After a 20-minute rest, it started pulsating once more. We stayed 10 feet away. And so help me, the thing grew as bright as all get-out, except where it was hurt. It had a mica-like shell body. It tried to rise up again, but sank back again. Then we saw a large round shadow fall on us. We looked up and ran. Coming in was a much larger animal, 30 feet across. It paid no attention to us, but settled itself over the small one. Four sucker-like tongues settled on the little one. The big one got so dazzlingly bright you couldn't look at it. Both rose straight up and were out of sight in a second. They must have been traveling at a thousand miles an hour to get so high so fast. When we walked over there, there was an awful stench. The frothy stuff the little one had bled looked like fine aluminum wire. There was more frothy, wiry stuff in a 30-feet circle where the big one had breathed. This stuff melted finally in the sun, and we took off. So help me, this was an animal. I've never told this before, as we knew no one would believe us. I only write now because this animal would be one big 30-foot light if seen at night. I don't expect belief, but I simply had to write. Don't use my name. I'm still flying. But write if you want more information. And now for another monster, we have a few accounts of the Cactus Cat. These accounts were published in two books from 1910 and 1939. These books being Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwood and Fearsome Critters. Similar names and similar accounts. Here I've edited together Jacob's readings from both of those accounts of the Cactus Cat to create a more complete account of this peculiar little guy. This is Cactus Cat. Back in the 1800s, frontiersmen and cowboys spoke of a strange creature stalking the deserts, the Cactus Cat. Standing maybe two feet tall at the shoulder, but covered with thorn-like hair, it has sharp bones on its front legs and a branched, spiky tail. The barbs on its heads are further clustered into small, horn-like, rigid parts behind the ears. The Cactus Cat survives by eating the sap of common cacti found in the deserts where it lives. 
It uses the sharp blade-like bones on its front legs to slash open the cacti and feed off the sap inside. Unfortunately for the cactus cat, often this sap ferments and intoxicates the cat with its sweet, alcoholic-laden substance. The cat will then stumble off, drunkenly through the desert, in an alcoholic haze. Cowboys and other frontiersmen reported hearing the cactus cat at night, wailing in the darkness, and occasionally rasping its bony arms together. If the stories are to be believed, the cactus cat would even occasionally attack humans, drunkenly streaking into campsites, leaving large welts from its barbed skin as it lashed out at campers. Only the old-timers know of the beast and its queer habits. The cactus cat has thorny hair, the thorns being especially long and rigid on its ears. Its tail is branched, and upon the forearms above its front feet are sharp, knife-like blades of bone. With these blades, it slashes the base of giant cactus trees, causing the sap to exude. This is done systematically, many trees being slashed in the course of several nights as the cat makes a big circuit. By the time it is back to the place of the beginning, the sap of the first cactus has fermented into a kind of mezcal, sweet and very intoxicating. This is greedily lapped up by the thirsty beast, which soon becomes fiddlingly drunk and goes waltzing off into the moonlight, rasping its bony forearms across each other and screaming with delight. Occasional cases have been reported where the cactus cat flogged him to death with his spiny tail. Owing to the reddened blebs appearing on the victim's hide, such deaths were usually attributed by the laity to a severe attack of prickly heat, but the old-timers knew better. It was the cat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. The show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.